thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Part of the irony to me, its greatest threat has actually not been the incredible hostile environment that is war and all this different anti-aircraft. It's been bureaucratic decisions, and yet it still has kept on trucking. So it is survivable in more ways than one. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, and this is the first episode of 2024. It's number 182. We'll be revisiting the A-10 Thunderbolt 2, or Warthog really, but first, how you doing? How's the new year going? It's going well for me, and I hope it's true for you as well. I'm, let's see, I don't know, have I done any uh, New Year's resolutions? Not really. I haven't had a drink yet this year, but that's only because my family's been gone and it's not a good idea to drink alone, but... Let's see. I'm five days into this as I'm recording, so maybe we'll see how long we can go. Could be tonight. Who knows? Anyway, let's see. I've got one quick announcement, a couple of listener questions, and then we'll get to our interview, which is with Mr. Hal Sunt, who, unlike most of our guests, is not a military member or veteran at all. He's an author. So we'll get to that in a second. But first, I want to share this email from Colin. It says, I got the call yesterday that I was selected to go to OCS and flight school. I go to OCS in February and will report to NAS Pensacola afterwards, presumably. I wanted to thank you for the podcast and always being a friendly voice of motivation for the hundreds of others like me out there pursuing this dream of military aviation. Your words of motivation and the stories you and your guests tell are invaluable when times get tough in the process. Thanks again, and fly Navy. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Colin, you're very welcome, and thank you, because this is the kind of feedback that really keeps me going with this endeavor. This is our seventh year as a podcast, and feedback like yours is just so heartwarming. So thank you. Good luck. Take each day, one at a time. Do your absolute best, and enjoy it, because it goes by very quickly. All right, now an email from Cameron. This is a listener question now, one of two we have. And Cameron says, I am currently a senior Marine Corps ROTC midshipman at Texas A&M University. I have a pilot contract and hope to fly helos, but at the end of the day, I know that the Marine Corps chooses what I fly. Now, Cameron goes on, but I just want to pause and mention two things. First is I did respond already to Cameron on his email. But secondly, Cameron, and really for everyone who's going to hear this, don't forget that you have a say in that in so much as your performance. If you do your absolute best and you rank high at the end of the day, when they are doling out the platforms, you will have a better chance of getting what you want, whether it's helicopters or fighters or heavies or whatever the case might be. In the Marine Corps, not a whole lot of heavies, but C-130s. Anyway, Cameron goes on, throughout my time at Texas A&M, I've been a part of numerous question and answer sessions with current Marine Corps officers and enlisted, and a question that always seems to come up is how family life works in the military. I've heard family success stories and not so successful stories, but I want to reach out to get your take on dating slash marriage as a pilot in the military. I can't speak for all of my ROTC peers, but based on my experience with them in the last four years... Family life always seems to be a major gray area for most of us. I've thoroughly enjoyed every episode over the last year. I appreciate the time and effort you put into discussing the military and the life of a fighter pilot. Also, I just listened to Project Recover podcast, and because of it, I'm going to look more into becoming a volunteer there. Thank you again, and I look forward to hearing from you. Well, thank you, Cameron. Again, uh, like you said with Colin there, this is awesome feedback, and I'm glad to know that I can be a voice for folks like you. And I'm sure Project Recover would love your help, but I also assume they won't hold you to it because you're about to get very busy. So <laughs> don't overcommit yourself. But yeah, certainly they'll be happy to take what help they can. And sometimes that just comes in a financial contribution, which apparently many listeners did. So thank you. Anyway, Cameron, to your point, as I said in my email response, this is exactly why in the first year of my podcast, 
that we released episode 34 with my wife and Sunshine's wife. And it is an important part. And I think relationships in the military are a lot like alcohol. I guess I'm going to bring that up twice today. You know how if you have friends that drink, you know how like it just alcohol brings out kind of the real them and whether that's good or bad. You know, some people want to look for a fight. Other people start kissing everyone. I think a marriage or I mean, dating's tough. I got lucky. I met my wife at a bar, frankly, in Pensacola. She was on spring break. I was waiting to start flight school. It was awesome. We liked each other right away. And uh, the rest you can read about in my memoirs that I'm working on. But yeah, I can't speak to the dating part. She talked to me first, so I got lucky there. But marriage-wise, I remember telling her from the get-go, I was like, hey, look, I'm going to be a military pilot. I'm going to be gone a lot. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be, you're not going to hear from me at times. And that was the foundation really of our, well, not the foundation of our relationship, but it was there at the beginning. And so I think if a relationship is strong, then the military side of it won't matter. If it's weak, then I think the military side of it will expose the weakness. And so if you have someone you're serious about, I recommend a heart-to-heart talk and maybe even have them talk to other couples. Uh, My wife has even spoken with other young ladies because of this podcast who have had questions about what it's like. And so put some time and effort into it. Make sure you have a solid relationship And it can be done and it can be done well. I mean, gosh, we raised three kids. We lived all over the place in different countries and states and we had a really great time. And the reason I was alone and haven't had a refreshment for the last five days is because they all decided to go back to Japan where we were stationed because they loved it so much. And I said, "Eh, it's too much running for me. I'm going to hang here. But at any rate, they all wanted to go see where we were as a family. Gosh, it's been 10 years now, maybe more. And so, yeah, it really was. Let's see, we got back in 2010 from Japan. Anyway, I would say again, make sure the relationship is solid. Make sure your significant other knows what to expect and maybe get some other references on that. And then just communicate a lot and, you know, write letters, emails, go for walks, hold hands, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, all right. Last email is from Sean. If an ejection seat malfunctions and a pilot can't land anywhere and there's an emergency where the fighter pilot has to eject from the jet, What do they do? I read on a message board that they would fly inverted and blow the canopy and eject that way. Is that true? Also, does a fighter pilot have a parachute attached to his survival vest? I know there's a parachute attached to the ejection seat. Great job with the podcast. Been listening for a while. Well, thank you, Sean. Uh, I mean, if you read it on a message board, right? It's got to be correct. Um, No, I don't know. Let's see. I'll start with the easy one. It depends. And that's to your second question. I flew, let's see, A4, T2, F18, F16, and all of those incorporated the parachute into the ejection seat. Now, I never had a chance to fly the F5 Tiger II, but when I was in Fallon those two times, VFC-13, who now flies F-16s, they used to have to strap on their parachute and then waddle out to the aircraft. So it just depends. Now, to your first question, that also depends. And you might remember Jambo was our guest on, gosh, what was it, episode 149 during Top Gun month when Top Gun Maverick came out. And then he was there that night when we had a private screening and then a reaction video. So that's on our YouTube channel. You can check it out. But he did talk because I asked him specifically about that because that's what happens to Rooster in the story is he can't pull the handles and eject. And I said, hey, is that something that was a known issue in the F-14? And he sort of talked to that. Now, in the F-18, yeah, I mean, if for whatever reason the seat won't eject, You could, if you're in flight and let's say you're on fire and you have a little bit of time, you're not like out of control spiraling to the ground. But if you've got a little bit of time, but yeah, you need to get out of there and you can't land it. What you could do there is you could blow the canopy, as you stated, and then you can pull the manual override handle. And then you could either crawl out or, as you suggested, roll inverted and push. And then you'd kind of pop yourself out of there. And then you should take the seat pan and the uh, head box uh, should come out with a parachute there as part of that as well. So... By the way, I was thinking about this. If some of you F-18 guys out there are saying, no, Jello, that's not right, please let me know because I was dusting that part of my brain off and I said, yeah, I think I remember that being an issue. But at any rate, I'm going to stick by that, Sean. And um, I can't speak to the F-14 or, gosh, I don't remember the procedures in the F-16. I only had 170 hours in it. So go with that and I hope that works for you. All right, everyone, as I said, this is episode 182. It's with Mr. Hal Sunt. You'll hear in a moment that he is not a military member. And we are talking about his book. And he didn't pay me for this. I'm not paying him for this. 
I just read the book. I loved it. And I wanted to ask what inspired him to write it and what he's working on next, which stay tuned for that. That one was kind of shocking. And it's just a great discussion. He's very enthusiastic. He reminds me of a lot of young pilots. So we recorded this, golly, what was it? Early December in our studio here in San Diego. You can find the video version over on our YouTube channel. Otherwise, enjoy this interview with Mr. Hal Sun. And we'll leave it at that at the end. And then we'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Here we go. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, and my guest today is Mr. Hal Sunt. He is the author of Warplane, How the Military Reformers Birthed the A-10 Warthog by Lions Press. Hal, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm a fan <laughs> of the pod, and it's a bit surreal to be on, so thank you for having me. Well, this is where the magic happens, yeah. so uh, we're glad to have you, but... You or somebody did send me this book, uh, I think a few months back, and it sat in my list because I get a lot of books, but it percolated to the top, and once I opened it, I couldn't put it down. Wow. Uh, I really enjoyed it, so thanks for that. And and you even say in the author's note, and I want to quote this to get you right, you have never flown an airplane or served in the military, and you said that you opine that this is not the first book on the A-10 and likely will not be the last. So let me ask you, what inspired you to write this book in the first place? So I'd gotten really interested in design probably in late 2019. I'd actually been writing a story about roller coasters, and I was curious who designs roller coasters. And as part of that, I got interested in design more generally. And I'd always been a fan of airplanes, and these two things kind of coincided where I had read Robert Coram's book about John Boyd. Phenomenal, phenomenal book. Indeed. And he briefly mentions some things about the A-10 in there and this incredible figure named Pierre Spray. And I was like, you know, this seems really interesting. I want to learn a lot more about it. And as I did more and more research, I was like, wow, there's an incredible story of design here. And to me, the A-10 is, it's kind of like the toaster. It's this thing that was built decades and decades ago, and it's still humming along, doing the job just as well as it was 60 years ago. That, and as a kid, I always grew up, you know, watching Top Gun with my dad and that kind of thing. So I'd always had a general love of airplanes and combining design with aviation. The A-10 was like, to me, the most perfect combination of those two things. I remember having a picture of an A-10 on my wall as a kid and my brothers and I would sit up at night making plastic models of different <laughs> things and we always had the A-10 there. And yeah, it looked a little funky, but it is purpose-built as we'll get into hopefully in this conversation. And in fact, on the inside cover of the book, again, I want to quote you here to make sure I get it right, but you state, it is the Forrest Gump of airplanes, a singular character whose story coincides with almost every major development in aviation, technology, and military engineering history. So as you did your research, Expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So that's when I thought there might be an idea for a book mm -hmm. about the A-10. And I needed basically a one-sentence pitch to get my audience interested. A pitch that was true. You know, I, I didn't just make it up. But as I thought about it, I was like, wow, if I need to understand the A-10, I need to understand, honestly, going back to trench warfare and World War One, and then how we developed bombers and all of these different things. And I was like... This airplane, as it moved through history in its development and the folks who designed it, they connected to all these major moments in history. I mean, Pierre Spray, who was kind of the guiding spirit behind the A-10, he worked for Robert McNamara's Whiz Kids. And I realized, well, I need to understand who the Whiz Kids were and what they were about. And that required me to understand operations research in World War II. And then as it developed further, I was like, wow, I need to understand why did we build an attack plane? Why was it hard to build an attack plane? What was the culture around attack aircraft versus bomber aircraft? And then post-World War II, I guess the word I would use is sort of infatuation with nuclear bombing and different ways to deploy nuclear weapons. I had to understand that. And just the more and more I tried to wrap my head around this kind of what at the time I thought was an ugly airplane. Now I think it's beautiful in its way. But I just had to understand all these things. And I was like, this feels like watching Forrest Gump, where this thing just happened to connect to all these other moments in history. And it was really fun for me. It was kind of daunting to try and wrap my head around it. But when I realized that, I was like, oh, I think there's a story here. Yeah. And that the A-10 is in and of itself 
a really curious, interesting character. It certainly is. And you have a couple people in the book, you've already named Pierre Spray, who we sort of follow along, or at least are very instrumental in the development of the A-10 and, and really through its entire life. But let's start with Avery Kay. You introduce yeah. him relatively early in the book. Tell us about uh, Mr. Kay. So one of the kind of preambles I'll give here is that Pierre Spray is thought of as the father of the A-10. But whenever someone would say, hey, Pierre, you're the father of the A-10, he would correct them. He'd say, no, that distinction belongs to this gentleman, Avery Kay. And Avery Kay was a navigator in World War II, flying in B-17s. He was actually on the sort of fateful Schweinfurt raid that had a lot of problems, kind of went a bit disastrous. But in his military career, he found himself in this unique position in the early 60s where he had helped negotiate the contract between the Army and the Air Force to transfer all of the Army's fixed-wing aircraft to the Air Force, and the Air Force gave the Army their helicopters. And then he felt this kind of crisis of faith where he's like, are we giving the troops on the ground the close air support that they need? And as he reckoned with that sort of unease or a little bit of, not quite guilt, but he felt uncomfortable about that, he realized... I need to do something to rectify this. And so he wanted to build a close air support airplane, or at least bring that into production. And so he's this incredibly interesting figure who's sort of, I guess, an unsung hero that grew up in the tradition of bomber aircraft and had the humility to be like, they have their purpose and their value, but they are not the solution to everything. And that's what all the people around Avery K, they were really struck by his humility, his his decency, how ethical he was. And so I knew that in writing this book, I wanted to spend at least a little bit of time right at the start talking about Avery Kay because Pierre and the other folks I met, that's a name that kept coming up. And as someone who's a fan of aviation, I'd never heard the name Avery Kay. And I wanted to begin there. Yeah, Yeah. shed some light on him. And it's interesting what you talk about there because there were so many parochial bomber guys in the Cold War And it really was a bomber air force for a a long time. And here was at least one person who bucked the trend a little bit and said, hold on, it can't be the only thing we're doing. We we need these other aircraft. So then he brings on Pierre Spray, who you've mentioned a couple of times, a big character. And like you said, mentioned in the John Boyd book, which I also very much uh, enjoyed. Tell us who Pierre Spray is. I mean, Pierre Spray was this remarkable man. His family fled France in the early 40s. They flew out of Casablanca, and he would say, just like in the movies, (laughs) they settled in Queens, and at 15, he went to Yale. So he was quite literally a genius. There he studied French literature and mechanical engineering. So he was this sort of renaissance man of sorts. But he had a real interest in aviation and the military quite generally. In the early 60s, or mid-60s, rather, he began working for Robert McNamara's WizKids, who were reimagining kind of the Department of Defense. And he, of his own volition, he didn't know Avery Kay at this time, realized he was assessing the spending, the military spending, and he realized we need something to do the job of close air support. He actually also was instrumental in developing the F-16 as well. So he believed in having something close to the ground and something to dominate the skies. And he had written this memo that said, where our funding and money is going, it's not going to win us a war if the West were to be invaded with tanks. And so we need something like the A-10. Well, Avery Kay got this memo from this plucky young civilian who was a bit foul-mouthed and kind of bucked a lot of trends. He, he didn't really like wearing muted business suits in the Pentagon. If he had to wear a tie, he would wear an ascot instead. So he, he w- wasn't exactly winning popularity contests. And a lot of people saw this memo and they they were not a fan, but Avery Kay was like, this person gets me. He's communicating the same thing that I'm thinking about. And he sought out Pierre Spray, who was busy in his office defending himself from a bureaucratic attack. And Avery Kay said, I need your help. And just to go back to Avery Kay for a minute, Pierre was the one who, you know, he gets a lot of credit, rightfully so, but he would continually champion Avery Kay and say, Here's this man who had served in World War II and had this illustrious military career who sought out a civilian in Pierre and said, I need your help. Can you help me build this thing? Over his time in the, in the Pentagon, Pierre, he, he was just such an interesting figure in championing what we would later call human-centered design. He really believed in common sense, in reaching out to the people who actually were using the tools that we were designing, which I guess seems obvious, but... It was revolutionary at the time. 
he would often say that the best sources of information were not these long data sheets or formal reports, but they were memoirs written by pilots of different aircraft or soldiers who had served on the ground because those, for him, because he never served, but that helped him get as close to the battlefield as possible and understand what people really needed to help them do the job that they were doing. So I'm just so touched that I got to spend so much time with him, too. He was just a remarkable, remarkable man. Yes. And you mentioned towards the end of the book that you spent a weekend with him, and then unfortunately that was it, right? Uh, He passed away three days later, I think it was? Yeah, so we first began speaking been like April 2020. And so for the first year, we would do a lot of interviews over the phone. Well, that was COVID too. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I would just put this tape recorder on and, and let him drive. That was such a fascinating thing for me to, Master it was class. like listening, it was like the history channel, but in real life, you know, coming through the microphone. The following year, we spent a fair number of days together over the summertime. But the, the final visit we had was these three days together in Maryland, where we visited the 104th Fighter Squadron at the Maryland International Guard, and then we spent a few more days speaking, and then two or three days later, I got the news that he had passed away really suddenly, and it caught me as a shock, because, you know, at the time, he was 83 years old, but he was in, seemed to be in wonderful health. I think I say he was trim and charming. He had a tattoo of a flower on his forearm. It was a temporary tattoo. He'd gone out to the bars with some hog drivers the night before we'd met. <laughs> And I got the news, and I was I was sort of stunned. Yeah. And I had this weird feeling of, like, there's still so much I want to ask this man and learn from him. So I tried to do my best in telling the story of the A-10, but also to a degree telling his story. Mm-hmm. But to be clear, he was an individual who I think one day will have a biography or many biographies about him. He lived just this remarkable yeah. life. He didn't seem particularly worried about winning popularity contests. He wasn't afraid to break some China or whatever expression you want to use, but he really went against the grain a lot of times, it sounds like. Yeah, he would not exactly get quickly or easily promoted in things. <laughs> His first job in the when he was working with the Wiz Kids, he actually got – so he didn't get fired from the Wiz Kids, but he got fired from this particular group because they had described this linear model for projecting – how they were going to deploy forces. And Pierre had studied linear models in graduate school. He studied, or systems analysis, excuse me. And he walked in and he said, that's not going to work. And this is a group that had spent years doing this. And he he wasn't trying to be a jerk. He was allied to the truth. He wasn't worried about sort of, is this the, the opinion that I should state to get ahead? It was difficult, though, because he got fired from that particular role because his comments were kind of eroding the morale of this group. And they were like, we need to get you somewhere else. But that was his, to me, his, his integrity was he wasn't trying to climb some kind of rank. Yeah. A lot he of benefit was, to that. Certainly. At least one person should be like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And he ended up being part of this group called the military reformers. So they were descended from this other group called the Fighter Mafia, which Robert Quorum talks a fair bit about in his book. And to different degrees, they all kind of had this similar mindset, which is we need to build things that work. We need to not just kind of toe the company line. We need to actually assess the data and make informed decisions that will improve our performance rather than help us get promoted. Yeah. And that's who the military reformers were, were these people that were more aligned to the truth. And let's not just do the things the way they've been done, but let's do them the best way. And right. so even if that's a little unpopular or because, right, some people get stuck in a certain rut or they want to protect their own careers or ego or whatever. And every once in a while, you need someone to come along and say, hold on, this is all like the kid who says the emperor has no clothes. Right? Absolutely. Go. Good. And what interested me about them, I mean, there's a whole lot of things. But if I approached this as a story about design, what they were championing was this thing called human-centered design. They didn't call it by that name at that time, but this is building things for the people who will use them and things that will work and will work well and will be easy to use. And human-centered design, it was an offshoot of this thing called participatory action research, which is a really fancy name that actually means... Let's talk to the folks on the ground who are going to use a product, whether it's a military product or something else. But let's get their input and build something to meet their needs, which is it just comes down to common sense. But this was all new to me. I I didn't really think about design until, I don't know, four or five years ago. Hmm. And that's how something like the A-10 was 
brought into the world, asking the people who are actually going to use it, how can we make this the best and easiest thing to use possible? Well, and so let's get into some of that development and how it was, in the case of the A-10, different than really how things had been done before. And let's start with, again, we already kind of hinted to it, but the Air Force at the time was either very bomber-centric or was starting to move into being very Mm fighter-centric. Did anyone even want a dedicated attack, close air support type of platform at that point? (laughs) So the folks on the ground certainly did who who needed close air support. But within the the Pentagon ecosystem, not particularly. I think part of the thinking there was that there were other platforms that could do this job. But Pierre and others felt that we need something that is actually suited for this purpose, to do the task better than anything else that we have. We had a few other airplanes that existed at the time. I mean, one that is quite beloved, and Pierre actually had a lot of appreciation for, is the A-1 Sky Raider, which was sort of this, it was an airplane kind of caught in between these moments of history where it was built like at the end of World War II, and if you know what the A-1 looks like, it kind of looks like a P-47. I mean, it, it seems very much a World War II aircraft. In between World War II and Vietnam, we didn't really have a suitable sort of dedicated attack airframe. We had the A-4, but the A-4 was actually originally designed for low-level high-speed nuclear bombing. Mm-hmm. And then it's turned out to be a, an amazing aircraft. But there was a, a gap there, and we needed something. But it was not a super popular idea at the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, they looked at, as you said, the A-1, according to the book, the P-47 and others. But one thing I really liked, and I just happened to see this recently on social media anyway, was the analysis they did in World War II of, I guess, some of the bombers that came back. And they looked at all the holes and they said, well, where should we put armor? Because look, all the holes are in the wings or in the fuselage. And it took someone like a Pierre Spray type of character to say, well, hold on, you're making assumptions. You have to think about your assumptions because you're thinking this is a, a fair sample, but in fact, all the <laughs> bullet hits in the engines are on airplanes that didn't come back. Exactly. So it really took some of that type of analysis to get this program started on the A-10. And it's why, you know, folks from afar would ask a question like, well, what does sort of a mathematician, who are they to build an airplane? Who are they to inform this? And it's, well, the mathematician's mindset, and I'm not a mathematician, I think if I was in that room, I would think about just adding armor plates to the fuselage of an airplane. But a mathematician's like, hey, no, what, where we need armor is on the engines of these bombers because these are the ones that made it back. That's the variable that has changed. Right. So that informed ultimately the development of something like the A-10 where it needed to be ultra-survivable. At that time, there was not dedicated attack airplane like the A-10. What there was and what was a growing popular idea were attack helicopters. And it's sort of true but also a bit apocryphal in a way that the story of why the A-10 was built was actually it wasn't to destroy tanks or to provide close air support. It was to destroy a U.S. Army helicopter. And that is that in the late 60s, the Army was feeling like they were not getting adequate close air support, and they weren't. And they said, well, we're going to build something to do the job ourselves. And they wanted to build this really sophisticated advanced helicopter called the Cheyenne that actually could go faster than current Apache helicopters now. And the Air Force was like, wait a minute, we can build something to do this job. And that was the impetus for why the A-10 was created, was to basically illustrate we can still provide close air support. I don't think it was purely the antagonism of we don't want a helicopter. Well, when you say, obviously, I I understand this, but just for the sake of anyone maybe watching or listening, when you say to destroy that helicopter, you don't mean kinetically. You (laughs) mean, hey, wait, you're in our ballpark now. Let us do this, and that way we can keep the funding or the money or the importance or whatever. Exactly. It's a little bit of the uh, soup bowl. You're getting close to my bowl of soup here. Yeah. Okay. Well, another thing, though, that was worked into the A-10, and again, I heard this even in Robert Coram's book, was the energy maneuverability thesis, I don't know what else to call it, that uh, John Boyd and some of those guys came up with. So talk about that and how that played into the design of the A-10. Yeah. So the energy maneuverability theory, EM, in short, it posited that what matters in aircraft, you know, fighter aircraft design or, or anything that really needs to maneuver is not its total speed, not its overall, can this thing go Mach 2, twice the speed of sound, whatever. It's how quickly can it gain and lose energy because that will affect how quickly it can maneuver, change direction, all of that. I mean, that was revolutionary because to even step back and think, hey, 
it's not just overall speed that matters here. It's how do we manipulate that speed? With the A10, they had another, I think, kind of revolutionary idea with speed, which is that sometimes being fast in general is not a benefit to the pilot or to the folks that you're serving. So with the A10, they didn't, I guess EM theory would have informed it, but what the offshoot of that is that they realized the greatest asset that this airframe can have is for it to fly slowly. And that the slower it can go, the more valuable it is. And while there was, you know, a trend and a, a fascination with going as fast as we possibly can, the folks who designed the A-10 said, what we need to do is figure out how can we make this even slower. And now an A-10 goes, it goes slower than uh, at its top speed, a commercial airliner that you would take from like Cleveland to Chicago. I mean, it's, it is not a fast airframe at all. And that was informed by folks who had hunted tanks in World War II and later on that realized, hey, when we're flying over the ground, we need to be able to see what we're actually shooting at. So if we go too fast, it's all a blur. The other variable or kind of asset with the A-10 and how this relates to EM is it needed to not just fly slow, but it had to be able to turn very tightly to stay over the battlefield, which, again, when you step back and think about it, sort of seems obvious. But as someone who didn't know much about aviation before writing this book other than being a fan, that was kind of eye-opening to me. And one of the strengths of the A-10 is that it can turn very tightly but still fly very slowly. Now, other airframes, you could probably speak to this much better than I can, can turn really tight circles, but if you're going really fast, you're starting to pull a whole lot of Gs, Mm -hmm. and that's really taxing on the driver. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when they built this thing, they said it needs to turn tight and fly slow, which is kind of an unusual combination of things when thinking about airplanes. Well, and I think what's interesting about this is prior to this, as John Boyd was developing this theory, it was, let's look at airplanes like the F-100. Now let's map out what the performance is. And now they took it and flipped the script. Hey, knowing what we want the performance to be, what would be the right shape of the wing or the right weight of the aircraft or the amount of thrust that it needs, et cetera. So it really wasn't so much an analysis of what we have, but an impetus for how to design the aircraft. Absolutely. And it's so, I mean, an example of that, how that can yield very different results is that produces something like the A-10, which is not particularly sleek, but it also produces something like the F-16, which is... If you look up fighter jet in the dictionary, an F-16 is the photo that you would see. It's the image. Well, and to a degree, the F-15 as well before it got very gold-plated, but still very successful. Mm -hmm. Just not what the reformers had in mind necessarily as everything else got added to it. Yeah, someone like Pierre, I, I think his critics would say he was a bit extreme in wanting things to be single purpose built, very streamlined. His favorite, or... A jet he really admired was a British airplane called the Nat, which was very, very, very tiny. But in his mind, you know, smaller, more streamlined, lighter weight, that, not for every mission, but for the missions that he had in mind, that was an admirable quality to have. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Aircore Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Aircore Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Aircore Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. 
Another thing that I read that was intriguing about the book that was different about the A-10 was in the past, as I understand, the military might go to the industry and say, we want an aircraft that can do this. And speed was definitely sexy at the time. We wanted to go Mach 3 and be able to, whatever, land on this length of a runway or shoot these kinds of missiles or whatever. And so then they would build it and you get what you get. Well, in this case, in fact, Chapter 7 is even, right, uh, what what is it, uh, fly before buy. So now, Instead, we have two prototypes. They're competing, and we'll have a winner, and that will become the result of the AX program. And, in fact, it was the A-10, not the A-9, as I understand. But that also was different, and I think it started around this era. Prototyping had been around for a long, long time, but what was new for how they were developing the A-10, there were two contractors that they were deciding between, and those models would be the A-9 and the A-10. And they said, we don't want to just fly these things against each other. We want it to be competitive prototyping, which means, and Pierre was very adamant about this, we want to have gunnery competitions, bombing competitions, and most crucially, survivability competitions. So they, as they were testing these different airframes, they brought in pieces of the airplanes, you know, a wing loaded up with fuel, and they said, we're going to shoot this with bullets, with guns, and we're going to see which one survives better. Does this thing light on fire more easily? Do these engines fail more quickly? And crucially, Pierre said, we're not going to use surrogate Russian weapons. (laughs) He said, and I don't know how they procured this exactly, but he said, (laughs) we're going to get Russian weapons off the black market and use those to shoot at these airplanes. And that's what's going to determine which is more survivable, which is more durable. So it was this relentless competitive prototyping, not just building two models and seeing which performed better quite generally, they wanted to put it through the ringer and come away with a very, to be as certain as they could, how would this thing perform and fare in a hostile environment? And I love the part in the book, and not just in a hostile environment simulated in some sterile laboratory, but no, let's put it out on some range, maybe even get a, an engine off a bomber to make a bunch of wind so it looks yes. like it's flying, and then literally shoot the thing hanging off a crane or whatever up in the sky and, and see what it does. So they were very rigorous about it, sounds like. Yeah, rigorous <laughs> and so practical. There was, there was another guy who was descended from this reform movement. His name was Bob Dilger. He was a, a really remarkable fighter pilot, and he ended up being a real ally of the A-10. He was involved in the testing of the gun, and he did a bunch of really interesting things, but Pierre said that his superpower was, quote, unbelievable common sense. (laughs) And that is kind of what informed for all of these guys how they built this airframe. We can all benefit from that, I think. certainly. That sounds like a rare quality these days. One of the other parts of the book that I enjoyed was you brought in other aircraft that I think most military aviation enthusiasts are familiar with, the F-117, the F-35, and I'll get to those two. But the first one that I was sort of mystified by was an A-16. I'm familiar with the F-16, and in fact, I've even read about the F-16 XL with the big Delta wing that maybe could have won instead of the F-15E Strike Eagle. But at any rate, I, I wasn't familiar with the A-16, so tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, so I wasn't familiar with the A-16 at all either. It was a short-lived program to convert F-16s into doing the attack role. And it was, I can't remember off the top of my head the the exact span of time that it was deployed or used, but it was briefly used at the start of the first Gulf War. They were tasked with bombing a particular area, and then they looked at the uh, (laughs) bomb dispersion after the attack, and all the bombs had missed. And they realized, oh, we can't just shoehorn another aircraft into doing this job. So we can't just make an F-16 necessarily do what an A-10 is designed to do. Although, to be clear, the reformers and Pierre and all of these folks, I keep talking and sort of celebrating the A-10, but they didn't have a particular allegiance to any piece of technology. They believe that it's the people who matter. They would say people first. So I just want to, you know, that's my kind of caveat there. But, yeah, I was surprised to learn that the A-16 was even a thing that it existed. And there's this really, probably the the most, I don't want to say famous because hog drivers are very humble, but the most well-regarded hog drivers was this gentleman named Muck Brown, Robert Muck Brown. And apparently when he saw the bomb dispersion of this A-16 attack, he had a way of these funny sayings. He looked at it and he said, those boys couldn't hit their dinner plate with a spoon. (laughs) And the reason I, in the book, just talked about so many different airplanes is I just found that I had to learn about so many airframes in writing about this airplane, and I 
also had in my mind, I don't know if my dream for the book in reading it is that it would kind of feel like going through a, an air and space museum and yeah you're there to see this one airplane but along the way you're saying oh there's an a1 and there's an f100 and there's an a4 and here's this guy ed heineman and as a kid i'd grown up going to pima air and space in tucson Mm -hmm. which for my money is it's it's just my favorite air and space museum ever i mean they it's their collection is incredible and that's what was my kind of impetus for talking about so many different airplanes along the way that's that to me is what's so fun about going to any kind of air and space museum is seeing how all of these different pieces of technology kind of inform one another and map onto each other. Right. Well, and when I read the part about the F-117 and its performance in Desert Storm, I got the sense you were making not so much a comparison to the A-10, but some of the rigorous mindset that some of these folks that you characterize in the in the book were taking and not just believing what's being said, but what's what's really the underlying story here. And in that regard, you reveal some maybe data or, or suggestions that F-117 wasn't really quite as magical as everyone painted it to be. That was eye-opening for me. So I had a, a chance, one of the individuals I spent a lot of time interviewing was a, a gentleman named Winslow Wheeler, who is kind of a descendant of this military reform movement and he at the time was working for the government accounting office the GAO and they were assessing the performance of the F117 after the Gulf War. As a kid I grew up watching all these VHS tapes of aviation in general and I for I don't know the first 25 years of my life sort of assumed that oh the F117 was the apple of our eye particularly in the early mid 90s and to be clear it did do a lot of effective things it's it's not a bad airframe by any means but the military reformers were skeptical that it was this panacea for bombing in general. And when they went back and looked at the data, they realized that, okay, the survival rate of the F-117, yes, no aircraft were shot down, but relative to how many sorties they flew compared to, frankly, something like the A-10, statistically, there was not really a difference in overall survivability rate. And so it was Pierre who I believe said during a congressional hearing, it seems that, quote, the stealth is not all that stealthy. And that demystified a lot of of aviation design for me personally. Again, to be clear, though, these folks were not saying that the F-117 is a bad airframe, but they said it is one piece of a larger force structure. And Something like the F-117 in the early, mid-90s, it could do its job, but it couldn't do it alone. And they didn't believe that any airframe could do their job alone. They championed something like the A-10, but it's not like they believed, oh, all war can be fought with just attack aircraft. Pierre, he helped inform the design of the F-16, and he loved the F-5. So I know we were just walking in the studio here, and I saw you have an F-5 in in the hangar, and he loved the F-5 Freedom Fighter. I mean, his allegiance was to, to the truth, but also to just streamlined, focused design. Yeah. In that regard, you mentioned in the book that in some ways he actually was a little bit disappointed with the A-10. He thought maybe it was too big, a little too heavy. So even something that he had such a big fingerprint on wasn't purely nirvana, I guess, in, in his mind. huh? That was eye-opening for me, too, is... I learned shortly after the A-10 entered service, you know, in the late 70s, Pierre was already thinking about, okay, how can we build a successor? He wasn't alone. There was other folks, including a gentleman named Chuck Myers, but they were already thinking about how can we make this thing better? And Pierre would say years later, you know, when I was interviewing him, he was kind of embarrassed that we still had the A-10 and there wasn't a suitable successor to it. Now, there's a lot of things that he really admired about it. He didn't think it was a banner from any means. It's it's the best at what it does. But he felt that we should constantly be improving these things. He wished that the A-10 was smaller, that it wasn't necessarily faster, but that it could accelerate more quickly so Mm -hmm. that it had better escapability. He felt that we could have actually more in the air kind of circling all at once. So his blueprint for what an A-10 could be would be sort of like this airplane, this British gnat, mm-hmm. these, these very small aircraft. Yeah. So I have to think then the development of the F-35 must have just driven him crazy because here we have a man who's championing, dare I say, single task, single mission aircraft, cheap, 
easy to fly, low technology, make a lot of them. And along comes this program, which I don't want to make this a referendum on how well or, or not the F-35 has performed. And I've had guests here in the, on the show who feel very strongly that it's a very good aircraft. But, in fact, I think there, I've heard a, even a soundbite of him reacting to the F-35. But that must have just driven him crazy. And you do mention the F-35 in your book. Pierre was not a fan of the F-35 <laughs> at all. However, I can go into some of his, his critiques of it. I agree with you. I was able to talk with, uh, in particular, some hog drivers who have flown the A-10 and then have also flown the F-35, and they had a lot to recommend about it. And I think that the sort of surface-level conversation of, oh, the A-10 is great and the F-35 is terrible, a lot of folks who have flown both airframes wouldn't draw that line in the sand. It's that they're built for different things. Pierre believed that you design something for a particular mission, and then, if it's really well designed for that mission, it can also do other things. So the A-4 he thought was a great example of that. He said it was built for low-level, high-speed nuclear bombing, which, am I allowed to swear on this? Absolutely. (laughs) He called that, these are his words, an utterly dumb shit mission or horse shit mission, (laughs) which, by the way, those were his two favorite descriptors. Here's this brilliant man, and he would constantly say, you know, that's a dumb shit thing or whatever. So he didn't think that that mission was all that great. However... He felt that it was really well designed for that mission. And it just so happened that then the A-4 was able to do all sorts of other things. Because Ed Heineman, who designed the A-4 and the A-1 Sky Raider, was a brilliant designer. So how that connects to the F-35 is to set out and immediately design something to do lots of things all at once. Pierre just fundamentally didn't believe in that ethos, that mindset. How can you design something to be excellent at a whole bunch of different things? You design it to be excellent at one thing, and it may happen to do other things well, too. But I think he also lamented, frankly, the cost of the Joint Strike Fighter program and all of that. Yeah, he was a very outspoken uh, (laughs) advocate against the F-35. Yeah, for sure. Well, so the A-10 birthed, and dare I say, some degree of controversy. Not a plane anyone really loved or wanted, but here you have all the story that you outlined so well in the book. And really, almost from the beginning, the Air Force tried to kill this thing. And it has tried and tried and tried. And in 2020, just before COVID, I had a chance to go to Tucson and visit the AMARG out there. And they were refurbishing wings for the A-10. So even in 2020, I know they were trying to keep them around. At least that was the last point of data I had on it. But Mm -hmm. I remember right before Desert Storm, they were trying to kill it off. So this poor aircraft has led a very tumultuous life, but loved by the pilots and certainly loved by those on the ground, which is how your book starts, is a gentleman on the ground in Afghanistan. And an A-10 basically is the cavalry that saves the day. And so everyone who makes policy or is in the Pentagon seems to hate it. Everyone who's in the trenches or in the cockpit seem to love it. That's part of the irony to me in what makes it interesting to me is its greatest threat has actually not been you know, the incredible hostile environment that is war and all this different anti-aircraft. It's been these bureaucratic decisions. And yet it still has kept on trucking. So it is survivable in more ways than, than sure, one. Sure. And there's de- definitely uh, examples of all of that. We've had people bring back uh, very damaged A-10s in combat. And here we are in 2024. And uh, to my knowledge, the A-10 is still flying and will be for a while. And so it's fought off both enemies from both sides. Absolutely. And I should say that was something early on when I was writing this that I I really wanted to be conscious about. Okay, I'm spending a lot of time writing about this airframe that is fundamentally, it is a weapon, right? And what does it mean to write about something like that? And how do I approach that? And to me, when you see a photo or videos of an A-10 that's riddled with bullet holes or damage or anything like that, you know, I think it forces the discerning observer to reckon with what was this thing used for and what does that mean? And I think that the A-10, I don't want to call it a symbol, but I think it bridges that critical distance between someone who's a civilian like me and service members who are serving abroad, what is involved in conflict. And an A-10, it doesn't hide its purpose. It doesn't sugarcoat things. And I think that there's something important about that site. 
Good. Hal, I told folks who support this show that I was going to be sitting down with you, and they have posed some questions that I'd like to put to you. That's, that's great. Right. I'm looking so, yeah, forward to it. These are Patreon supporters. First one is Mike. He said, well, and some of these we might have already answered, but we'll just uh, call it a lightning round if you'd like. Mike wants to know, was the casserole also considered in the original A-10 design, or was the plane adapted to fit that role? And you talked a little bit about this with Avery Kay at the beginning. So the A-10's origins, kind of the impetus for its design, it was twofold, actually. So I, my answer, the short answer to that is, is sort of both. Next question is from Jim Gundog. It's a little longer one, but it's a good question. He says, as a soldier that has relied on the A-10 and the absolute professionalism and dedication of the men and women that fly, maintain, and support the A-10 mission, we always hated the fact that the Army seceded our own fixed-wing close-air support to the Air Force. Why can't the Air Force give the A-10-style CAS mission back to the Army and let us support our own close-air support operations like the Marines? You touched on this a little bit earlier, but that's, I mean, that's a pretty heavy question. Well, I'll say it's a great question. <laughs> I think I, I'm not an expert in all of the kind of, I think, legitimate bureaucratic reasons for how you would have to sort of transfer a mission over and that kind of thing. I think that it would probably be quite complex to move the infrastructure around training and facilitating how you get the airframes and, and pilots over there. I wish I had a, a better answer. I think it's a it's a great question. To me, I think that the maybe answer to that is to continue to try and improve the communication essentially between mm. air and ground. It gets to the origins of ground warfare and air warfare. I mean, so much of the founding of the Air Force and Air Forces, so this is not just the U.S. Air Force, but Air Forces in general, was the desire to have an independent force structure. And so that would be, I, I think, trying to kind of course correct the last, like, 80, 90 years of, of aviation history to yeah. a degree. But it's a, a fantastic question. I just think it would be... I, I kind of can't even begin to wrap my head around all the, the maneuverings that would be required. So yeah. I, I wish I had a better answer. But. Well, it also, I think, flies in the face of, what is it, the McConnell Accords or something? Mm -hmm. I believe it was in the 60s when the Air Force and the Army sat down and said, all right, look, you know, like you had talked about before, you do helicopters, we'll do fixed wing. Right. But they really, I think, solidified that a bit more because the Army does have fixed wing aircraft. They do some uh, ISR mm -hmm. and uh, other things. And, and the Air Force has some helicopters. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean... I, to Jim's point, I can imagine a world where, right, the Army already has their own flight school. They have their own airfields. Yeah, it would be some effort, but maybe whether it's the A-10 or maybe it's whatever replacement someday or the light attack that, hey, let's let them uh, do their own thing. But, yeah, I, I'm sure nobody who's involved in that decision-making would make it in the pure sense of how Pure Spray and the reformers and those people would, which is, does it benefit the soldier and, and everybody else? It'd be more like, no, we'd have to give up part of our budget or right. this base or this clout or whatever. So exactly. hard to remove all that from it. All right. We already answered Michael's about the gun and the point. Oh, there was a thing I wanted to mention oh, yeah, about the gun. Because the, the, the gun question is a really interesting one. But what was eye-opening for me is that the folks who were developing this whole weapons platform mm -hmm. was actually more challenging, was developing the ammunition that the gun was set to fire. And they had to do a whole bunch of different studies to determine what millimeter range was the best. So they were choosing between 25 millimeter all the way up to 35 millimeter. And Pierre told me at one point they were pretty tempted to go as big as 35 millimeter rounds. So the A-10 fires a 30 millimeter round. As you increase the diameter of a around the I mean its overall size increases dramatically. So a cannon that fires thirty five millimeter rounds would have been sort of unwieldy. But the way that they tested this ammunition was they set up in the Nevada desert all of these arrays of tanks and they would do these gunnery tests with rounds that were made in part of depleted uranium to determine how many hits would it take for a tank to be disabled or completely destroyed? And one of the things that they found in these tests was that the way depleted uranium works is as it penetrates a tank's armor, the real damage it does is afterwards it, it splinters and then ignites within the, the tank. And so the first couple sequences that they, they did these tests, they were worried that they weren't doing enough damage and then they realized after like a couple of minutes smoke would start to billow out of the tanks and it was this delayed reaction and so at first they were panicked that oh no we, we don't have the right weapon and then they realized they very much did but 
part of that whole thing required them acquiring some Soviet Union Russian tanks uh, through, I think, some different secretive means that I'm not totally privy to. <laughs> but then setting up in the desert just these huge arrays of tanks. And again, to get to the practical competitive testing, they weren't going to use a computer program to determine, oh, we think that this round will work. They said, the way we're going to find out if this thing can destroy tanks is by firing rounds at it and seeing for ourselves. With regular pilots. Exactly. Not even test pilots in a lot of cases or anything else, but let's take some fleet bubbas over here and put them in and have them go do their thing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I like that. All right, next question is from John Clark. What was left out of the aircraft design that was wanted but not incorporated? And I love this question because it's it flies in the face of the gold plating, which is, again, what they all lamented about the F-15 is all these things were added to it. But John's question is, to your knowledge and with your research, was there anything left off the A-10 that they wanted? That's a great question. What Pierre and others wished it had was more powerful engines. Again, not to make it go faster overall, but to increase its escapability. That initial oomph or acceleration, that's the the thing that was... So it's not really an additional feature or Mm -hmm. tool. However, there were a lot of things after it was initially designed, when they went from the A-10A to the A-10C in the early 2000s, to make it much more sophisticated. And I don't think at the time there was a lot of clamoring for, hey, we need all these different pieces. But as the theater of war evolved and changed over the 25, 30-some years that it was initially in service, they realized this thing needs to be upgraded pretty significantly. And I had a chance to talk with some folks who were involved in that upgrade process, particularly in the early 2000s. And one thing that I found really interesting was it wasn't actually something that was added onto the airframe, but the Scorpion helmet-mounted queuing system. So basically this much more advanced helmet that the the drivers would wear. I mean, they did a whole lot of other things as well, but it was this really advanced helmet that they were wearing in this otherwise kind of, not archaic aircraft, but rather low-tech yeah. aircraft. Yeah. yeah. Well, for target acquisition, targeting, you know, sharing information on the battlefield, things like that, evidently uh, I'd never actually had a chance to fly with one of those helmets, but I'm told that it really can increase situational awareness and that data sharing between platforms. Jevin's question is, did the experts you interviewed for this book express optimism that the A-10 would continue to play a role in the current era of great power competition with increasingly sophisticated threats arrayed against it? And if so, how? I think you actually just pretty much talked about that. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think because it sort of gets at two things, which is one is something like the A-10 still relevant and useful in modern war. And I think by all accounts it is. It is not invulnerable. I think that there are certain landscapes where it would maybe not fare as well, but they have optimism that the the mission of close air support is still very much a needed one. The future of the A-10 is much more precarious. There's not a, a sort of, at this moment, a viable replacement or successor for it, and that force structure is, is dwindling a bit. But in terms of its usefulness in combat, it, they still very much believe that it is, and so optimistic in that regard. Yeah. And I think that optimism also stems from the fact that close air support, just as a mission, has been and continues to be a needed and useful and relevant one. It's been that way for 70-some years now, 80 years. Good. Joe Kunzler has an interesting question. Why does it take so long to develop a modern warplane? I would argue the A-10 is not technically a modern warplane. I mean, it was developed a long time ago. But on the other hand, with your research, uh, what would you say to Joe? Well, I love that question for a few reasons. One is that it has me think back to history. And the way that the A-10 was developed, it was actually developed rather quickly. I think it was from the time it was initially a germ of an idea in not even Pierre's mine, but Avery K's, to when it rolled off the production line, it was like maybe 10 years total. So I think that's a relatively short amount of time. But I was really interested in writing this to learn or to see that, particularly in the 50s, the rate at which we were developing new airframes and, and innovating and building on them, I mean, it was kind of astounding how quickly that happened. I think that in recent years, it probably takes so long because it costs so much, frankly, to build something. And there's now so much money that goes into any individual program. And what's good is that there's a whole lot of systems of checks and balances. But it just, when there's that much money involved, you have 
a lot more eyes on a project to make sure how that money's being spent, which again is a good thing, but it slows that process down yeah. quite a bit. One of the benefits for the folks who develop the going from the A10A to the A10C is because they were not particularly well funded. They also then didn't have a whole lot of eyes on everything that they were doing and they weren't doing anything secret or whatever, but they were able to make kind of expedite upgrades rather quickly through these different appropriations. There's one called NGRIA, which deals with Air National Guard upgrades, which are funds that don't need to go through the same kind of laborious approval process. Hmm. So that's kind of my answer is I think that as stuff costs more, the process gets slower and slower. Um, If things are cheaper, there's maybe a little bit more willingness to take a chance on stuff. That makes sense. Now, you said a moment ago there is no replacement. My final question is from Terry Alberta, who says, why no real replacement? Yeah. Um, It's kind of the eternal question around the A-10 and its continued relevance and its struggle to survive. I think that, and I should clarify that I'm kind of offering my, this is my informed opinion, so I'm not speaking for any particular entity. I think that there is questions about what the future of war, for example, will look like. And I think that there are strong opinions that that future of war will be one that doesn't involve close air support. I think that someone like Pierre would say, well, close air support is in service of the folks fighting on the ground. In the vast span of human history, every combat has ultimately been fought by the folks on the ground. And he was an empiricist. He believed in making, drawing conclusions based off of past experience. And so he would say, I think, that this will continue to be a need because this is how combat is fought. Now, I suppose the landscape of, of war could change to some degree, but so far it it, it has evolved. But sure. it hasn't totally changed. Well, and I think you could, again, look back at history and say similar assumptions were made in the late 50s, early 60s of all air-to-air combat will be BVR with missiles. Yes. So we, we need fast airplanes and long-range missiles. We don't need turning or guns. And I don't need to tell the rest of the story, but that's how, if nothing else, Top Gun came to be because those skills were no longer available and, and, and those assumptions proved to be false. So I think it's probably right, though. It's not as if you want to be thought of as a you know forward-leaning, dynamic, whatever, you're not going to just look back at what's happened. You're going to say, this is what the future, you know, follow me. I know what the future will be. And so that seems to be the more sensational maybe is uh, this is what we're going to do in the future. Right. You know, not just looking in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Humans don't seem to respond as well to that. <laughs> well, gosh, this has been a lot of fun, Hal. I get the feeling in your uh, demeanor that you really have a love for this airplane. And I can't help but wonder because when you invest yourself in something and you do the research and you talk to people, it becomes a part of you. So compared to when you first had the idea for this, how have you uh, migrated in your affection, if I may use that word, for yes. the A-10 <laughs> and the people who were uh, involved with not only getting it created, but keeping it alive all these years? So when I was... A- you know, when I was a kid, I I loved again because of Top Gun. I loved the F fourteen, mm-hmm. and and also the F eighteen. I think is actually the first die cast model of an airplane I had. So it's cool <laughs> for me to get to talk to an F eighteen driver. But I thought the A ten was like pretty ugly. I didn't particularly like it, and now it's my favorite airplane. I would say, and I see a surprising beauty in it. What I've been so humbled by from the jump. Because of Pierre and then the generosity of so many folks is how they've welcomed me and let me talk to them and and to a degree talk on behalf of the A-10. And I'm just grateful to even be, you know, a small part of this, the hog community in all of these ways. And it's a really special thing for me. I teach writing as well. And I tell my students when they're writing a long story, so they're not writing a book length work, but if they're writing a, you know, a long sort of magazine style story, one of the rewards of that is that you get to become obsessed with something and that obsession and and interest, what you take away from it, like that's the reward is, you know, for the rest of my life, I'll see an A-10 and I'll, for me, I'll see this story behind it. And I just think that's so cool. Good. 
Well, I hope the A-10 community is thankful for your work because, again, it's called Warplane, how the military reformers bird the A-10 warthog. And I learned a lot about it that I didn't know, even having had a guest on the show talk about it and and spent uh, my life in military aviation. So I think uh, people should go find it and uh, and read about it because it's not only very informative, but it's very well written. So thanks for that. I know better than to ask this, but I will anyway. Where can people find it? (laughs) So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold, independent books stores, all of that. And I, I want to thank you for taking the time to read it. It's just really cool to have someone read the book and, and want to talk about it. Writing is a kind of a lonely thing. So when you get to chat with people about it and speaking of grateful, I should just give a shout out here. So I've got a gift for you oh. from, this is from the 104th fighter squadron. Okay. It's a, I, it looks like the one you're wearing. It's the one I'm wearing, yeah. yeah so so this is of the Maryland Air National Guard. This is right. uh, I got to chat with a lot of hog drivers, but the folks from Maryland in particular were okay. extremely helpful and really welcoming. And so I well, just want to give them a, a shout-out there. Thank you. It's even my size. So I oh, will, excellent. Uh, I, will, I will wear it proudly. And uh, Now, so Hal, though, you're, <laughs> a, uh, you're, you're an author. That's your profession. Do, are you working on any other military aviation-themed books? So not military aviation right now. I've got the inklings of an idea. I think I want to write a book about insurance <laughs> because I don't understand how insurance works. Wow. And everyone I talk to, if I say, hey, do you know, how does insurance really work? They say, well, I think I know. And then I'm like, okay, well, explain it to me. I'm like, actually, I don't. Right. And I want to understand that world better. So it's a bit far afield, but that's kind of where and I'm early stages, but that's what I'm interested in now. Well, I guess that's what's good is if something interests you, you go start peeling back the layers on it and find out something about it. And who knows, you know, 10 years from now, if you're done with that book and on a podcast about insurance, because it probably won't be this one, no offense, (laughs) you might also have a passion for, hey, this is what I learned. And oh, by the way, this is what people need to know about insurance. But in this case, we uh, talked about what people need to know about the development of the A-10, some of the characters behind it, and uh, certainly why it's been tried to be killed off for so long, and they've still not succeeded. I really love the comparison of the different types of threats, those on the battlefield and those in the Pentagon. So, Hal Sun, thanks very much. Oh, real quick, uh, if people want to follow you or a website or anything like that? Yeah, so my website is halsunt.com, and through there, if you want to write to me or something, you know, there's a little form that will send me an email. So I'd okay. love to hear from you. Cool. Well, good. Well, before I let you go, let's grab uh, a pen here once we hit stop oh, yes. tape, and, and we'll get you to sign this for me, because I don't think you signed this one. I think it came straight from your publisher. So uh, really appreciate you coming on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Thank you for having me. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.